Our scripture can be found in the book of James, James 1, 2 through 4. It's James 1, 2 through 4. It's also in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1011. Count it all, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's great to see you this morning. If you are one of our visitors, we're especially glad that you've come to be with us. Thank you so much for being with us this morning and worshiping God together with us. We are reading the New Testament together as a congregation this year. We've just finished the book of James this week. At least I hope that you read the book of James this week. And coming up this, this week, beginning tomorrow, we're going to begin reading the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews 1 through 5. And if you've kind of fallen off and haven't been keeping up, tomorrow's a great day to get up and read Hebrews chapter 1. Maybe you're, not, or, or maybe you're not as familiar with the book of Hebrews if you haven't read the New Testament before or maybe it's been a while. Let me help you a little bit with Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that's written to a group of Christians that were Jews who became Christians in the first century. And it was really hard to be a Christian. And Hebrews is a book that is written to try to convince those Christians not to go back to Judaism. Don't go back to that old way. It might have been easier for you, but don't go back there because Jesus is better and what he's brought to us is better. And as you read the book of Hebrews, I want you to notice that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than everything. Don't leave him. And so that's the book of Hebrews as you read Hebrews 1 through 5 this week. Open your Bibles if you haven't already done so to the book of James. We're going to be talking this morning about tests of faith. There comes a time when in football, if one team is way ahead of the other in the third or fourth quarter, we call it garbage time. And what happens with the winning team is that the coach very often will take the third and fourth string players and put them in the game. And the reason why the coach does that is because he knows that those third and fourth string players they need experience and he wants to see how they're going to play in, in a real time, real game scenario. He wants to see what he's got. He's putting those players to the test. More painfully, math teachers. Math teachers will cover a unit in the math book for their class. And when they get to the end of the unit, the math teacher wants to know whether the students have comprehended and learned how to do the problems in that unit. And therefore, the math teacher will give a test to the students. And the reason why is because if you ask a bunch of eighth graders, no offense to any eighth graders, if you ask a bunch of eighth graders, have you guys understood everything I've taught? What are the eighth graders going to say? Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's just move on to the next section. That's not very smart of a math teacher. The test is there to show and to demonstrate what they can really do. When we become Christians, we begin a life of faith. It is a life that puts trust in what God says and the nature of faith is such that we don't see the things that we believe. 
if we, if we can see it, it's not faith, you understand? Faith is something that is trust in something that God has promised, something that God has said, but we have not yet seen it. And so as we live our lives for Jesus, there are multiple tests of our faith. And it's as if sometimes we just need to see in our own lives, have I really learned the lessons that God wants me to learn? Am I growing in the ways that God wants me to grow? Kind of like the coach that puts those players, third and fourth string players in at the end of the game. What can I do? What, am, what do I believe and how does that relate to my relationship with God? Or kind of like a math teacher giving a math test. Have I really comprehended and learned the things that God wants me to learn? In James chapter one, verse three, James says, know, brethren, that the testing of your faith produces patience. And that's gonna help you grow if you let patience have its perfect result. When you read the book of James, James is a book about faith. It's about practical faith. It's about living for God every day. And it's about the tests that all of us are going to experience as we live for Jesus every day. And there are four things to learn about tests as you begin the book of James. In the first place, tests happen to everyone. Notice in James chapter one, verse two, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The tests that come our way, everybody faces them. If you're a Christian, you're going to experience some challenges, some tests to your faith. God's not trying to get anybody to sin. He's not trying to get anybody to turn away from him, but he allows tests in our lives so that we can know. Have I really learned what God wants me to learn? Just like the math teacher needs to know, have the students comprehended this lesson? They happen to everyone, tests do. We need wisdom to be able to navigate tests in our lives. James chapter one, verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. God's never gonna get upset with somebody for saying, Father, I need more wisdom. I need to know better how I can see what's best in this situation. Notice as well, as you read James chapter one, we're going to sometimes face tests of adversity. Some of the tests in our lives that we face, that we experience, they are tests of adversity. That is, let the brother of low estate, the poor brother, in James chapter one, verse nine, let him glory in his exaltation. Some of the tests we face have to do with loss and they have to do with illness and they have to do with struggle and heartache and those things happen to us and God intends everything that happens to us for our good. That doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's will, but in everything that happens, God has a will for us. We're going to face tests of adversity. We're also going to face, James chapter one, verses 10 and 11, tests of prosperity. Some of the most challenging tests that you and I will ever have have to do with staying faithful to God in the midst of and even when we are prosperous financially, materially, our comfort is there, our luxury is there, will I still serve God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And so if tests are true, if they're going to happen to all of us, what are some specifics that James brings out for us to think about as we read the book of James, five practical chapters, five, I, I want to share with you this morning seven. There could be more than seven in this book as you study it, but I just picked out seven. Seven tests of our faith that every one of us, we ought to stop just like with the math teacher and ask, 
Have I really learned the lessons God wants me to learn? Are there some areas where I still need to grow? Are there some things in my life that are still amiss and I want to become more like Christ? Seven tests of our faith this morning. Number one, the first test that we read about in the book of James is the test of obedience to God's word. Will you do what he says? Will you obey his word, especially when it's hard for you to obey? In James chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, we are to receive God's word into our hearts, into our lives. Of his own will, he brought us forth, it says in James 1, 18, by the word of truth. It's the word of truth that we hear, the gospel. And in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he warns us to be quick to hear. Specifically in the passage, it means I need to be quick to listen to what God says and slow to speak and slow to anger. Because sometimes what God says makes people angry. Will I listen to, will I receive the word of God? Receive with meekness the implanted word, James 1.21, which is able to save your souls. And so the first test is, am I willing to receive God's word? You know, not everybody is. Not every Christian is. There may be some issues or there may be some topics that God's word very clearly speaks about. And you, when you hear the topic brought up, you say, well, I'm not going to listen. I'm tuning out. I'm turning off. Will you obey the word of God? Not only will you listen to it and receive it, but will you do it? James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And then when you think about resolving to do what God says, don't forget to do what you've planned. James 1.23 through 25 tells us that we're, we're like a man who looks at our face in a mirror and we see that we're all disheveled and yet we still go away and don't do anything to correct what's wrong. And the point in all of this are you agreeing with God's word in your life? As you read, as we have this exercise of reading God's word together this, this year, do you agree with what God says as you read the passages that are in front of you? And do you look for areas of your life where you say, it's not, I wanna read it so that I can see what other people are doing wrong or so-and-so really needs to read this chapter and think about it, but what is God saying to me in this chapter? What does God want me to do? And I don't want to forget what God says. And so as we think about living a life of faith, faith is all about the word of God. It's all about hearing and doing what he says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Are you diligently, willingly trying to hear and do more of God's word in your life? It's a test of obedience to God's word. Second test, as we think about living for Jesus... Second test that we ought to sometimes think about is, am I impartial with people? Look at James 2, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. He begins in James chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. In other words, don't be a respecter of persons. Don't treat some people differently than you treat others, especially when it comes to being a Christian. Partiality and showing preference for one person over another, that's not right. Especially when we look at some areas in which commonly people show preference or partiality. 
There is affluence. That's what James is talking about. Some people are wealthier than others. And he says, you Christians there, you're, you're showing preference to the wealthy man and you're despising the poor man by saying, sit down by my footstool when it comes to the worship assembly. Sometimes we show preference based on age. Sometimes those of us who are older, we kind of look down our noses at young people and we despise what they have to say or what their thoughts are because they're young. Sometimes young people, we just kind of feel like older people are out of touch. Don't show preference based on these matters. Sometimes appearance, how are we dressed? How do we comport ourselves? Sometimes based on ancestry, what culture, what ethnicity are you? Sometimes that can become a basis for showing preference or partiality. Sometimes achievement. What have you done? What have you earned? What kind of person are you? And the point that the scripture is making in James 2 verses 12 through, or James 2 verses 1 through 12, you cannot show partiality to people based on these superficial things and still be living a faithful life. Or to say it more practically, our faith, brothers and sisters and friends, if we're looking at tests of faith, our faith is sometimes tested by who do I run towards as a Christian? If the only people I ever associate with are people that think like me and people that are from the same areas as me and people that look like me, if those are the only people I gravitate toward and I never as a Christian make an effort to build bridges with people who are somewhat different in some of these areas, Something is wrong with our faith. And the Lord is saying, it's not right to have respect of persons. It's not right. There are some people that we're naturally gonna be closer to. There are some people that we're naturally gonna be drawn towards. But as Christians, we realize that we are all on level ground at the foot of the cross. One of the tests of our faith is the willingness to show impartiality with people. We're not treating people different based on these superficial things. Number three, as you read the book of James, it's practical. It means something. What does it mean to live by faith? It doesn't just mean that I come to worship and that's the only thing that identifies me as a follower of Jesus. It's all of these tests that we're reading about in this book. Test number three, am I willing to meet the needs of others? Look at James 2, verses 14 through 17. James 2, 14 through 17. James says, if one of you sees a brother or sister who's without clothing or in need of food, and you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? He's talking about seeing needs and seeing things that are legitimate that are legitimate problems in people's lives. This passage always reminds me of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, in, the, in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 29, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan where there's a man that's beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And there's a priest and a Levite, remember? And they pass by on the other side of the road. And then there's a Samaritan that comes by and the Samaritan sees this man in his need and the Samaritan does something. He goes above and beyond to help. This is a matter of faith, brothers and sisters and friends. Notice, if you will, when we decide that there are legitimate needs in front of us that we can help, there are some things that happen as a result of that. Loving others and meeting their needs 
It's more than just wishing someone well. Incidentally, if someone expresses a need or a concern on social media and you say, I'm praying for you, don't say those words without actually doing it. Or if you see somebody in the assembly who's going through a tough time, don't say, we're praying for you without actually doing it. It's not just wishing people well. I'd like to pray for you if I happen to think about it and don't forget, I really want to pray for you. It's more than wishing someone well. It's more than just saying, well, I hope that works out for you. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. It's useful. The good Samaritan, he took the man and bound up his wounds and put him on his own animal and take, took him to the inn where he could receive more medical attention and medical care. Meeting others' needs is useful. Giving someone clothing, giving someone food who's in need, James says. These are matters of faith. They're matters of expressing our faith in Jesus. Notice that loving others, think about this, it will always slow us down. If you're a parent, you listen. Loving your children will always slow you down. One of the reasons why God gives us children, parents, is so that we will take time to slow down in our hurried, busy lives and spend time with people that may not ever say thank you, but nonetheless deeply appreciate and are deeply impacted by the time that we spend with them. Loving other people will always slow you down. You know what we, we have a problem with? We have a problem with trying to love people while we're going 300 miles an hour. You just can't do it. Loving other people, meeting needs will always slow us down. And this is how we demonstrate faith in God. There are legitimate needs that only you can meet sometimes. And they're right there in front of you. A Christian, a disciple of Jesus, the test of faith. Will I meet others' needs? Look at James chapter three as we think about tests of faith. Test number four is how we speak. How do we speak? If of others you're tempted to speak, five things observe with care. Of whom you speak, to whom you speak, and how, and when, and where. The way we talk especially about people. The way we talk to people. This is a matter of faith, brothers and sisters. It's a matter of conviction. How we speak to people, how we speak about people. In James 3, verses 1 through 12, James tells us that our tongues, our speech, are actually setting the very course of our lives. They're controlling our lives, whether we know it or not. There are no neutral words. There are no words that are powerless. Even things that we just throw out that we think are empty words, filler words, they still communicate something. There's no such thing as an empty word. Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth is speaking. It's saying and expressing what's in your heart. And for every idle word that men may speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. Matthew 12, verses 34 through 36. So how is your speech? James says that your words are controlling your life just like a bit in a horse's mouth controls where the horse goes, just like the rudder of a ship controls where the ship goes, and just like a match that starts a forest fire, that's what your words are like. And sometimes we hear those statements and we hear those analogies and we think, well, that's probably true for other people, but it's not for me. What you're saying on a daily basis 
and how you say it, especially when you speak to people or of people, is controlling everything else about your life. Just like a bit in a horse's mouth. Therefore, the question is this. If Jesus says there are no neutral words, and there aren't, if James says that our words are controlling the direction of our lives and controlling the circumstances in our lives, and they are, there are only two kinds of words. There are words that curse and words that bless. There is no door number three, brothers and sisters. When it comes to our words, our words either curse people or they bless people. There is no third option that's given in this passage. And the question that we have to answer, it's a matter of faith. Are my words blessing the people that I speak to? Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what's necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Ephesians 4, 29. Are you speaking words of blessing or are you speaking words that curse? It's about your faith. Kind of like a math test. When I sit down and take the math test, I may or may not know how to do the problems. When I sit down and think about my speech, and the way that I've spoken about people and to people, I may or may not have really mastered and thought about what God's will for my life and my speech is all about. It's about tests. Test number five as you read the book of James. James 4 verses 1 through 4. If we are going to live for Jesus, brothers and sisters, we must resist materialism, covetousness, a desire for stuff and for things that preoccupies our hearts, and our lives. In James 4, verses 3 and 4, James says that one of the problems and the reasons for fighting and fussing within the church is the fact that they were lusting for other things and they couldn't obtain them, so they argued and fought. And he says, you adulterers and adulteresses. That's pretty strong language to use. And he's talking about materialism here. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other, cling to one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Can't serve both. Don't try to serve both because it's not possible to do. It's a matter of faith. And a question that we have to ask ourselves, all of us living in Katy, Texas in 2024, is money my master? Because it's a lot of people's master. I fear that it's a lot of Christians' master. Is money my master? Here are some questions to think about as I answer that. Number one, is there a genuine sense of contentment regarding stuff and money and things in my life? 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Is there a sense of contentment or is there always a striving and a desire for more and newer and better? Another question, is money my master? Am I living below my means? One of the reasons why God gives us work to do is so that we might have something to give to those who are in need. Did you know that? Did you realize also that you can't give to someone who's in need if you're not living below your means? Read Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 and following. 
is money my master? Am I being generous to others? Generosity will kill covetousness. And I'm talking about sacrificial generosity, not just the leftovers, but being sacrificial in how we give. It will get rid of covetousness in our hearts if we practice it with a view to Jesus and how he's treated us. Acts 20 verse 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And then this, when it comes to asking, is money my master? Am I trusting God to provide even when I don't know how he will? Because God makes promises. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6, Is money my master? Have I made myself an enemy of God by my attitude towards stuff and toward things? It's a test of our faith. Where is your faith? Who do you really trust? Who is really the substance and the theme and the content of what you believe and why you believe it? Resisting materialism. Test number six, as you study the book of James, the test of acknowledging God's will. We all have plans, we all have calendars, we all have day planners and things that we coordinate our schedules and we say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And in James chapter four, verses 13 through 17, James addresses that. He says, you're making plans for your future. Nothing wrong with that. But make sure that you acknowledge God's will. Don't be guilty of making plans and putting ideas and and, and agendas on a calendar and leaving God out of all that. Because to do that is arrogant, he says. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. James chapter 4, verse 15. If the Lord wills. The things I have planned for the future, I may never accomplish because if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Several of you have asked me this morning if I'm feeling better. Yes, I'm back to almost 100%. I appreciate you being concerned about me. But I've also said to several of you, it's fascinating that when we get sick, there's never a convenient time to be sick, is there? There's never a good time to be down with an illness. Isn't it interesting that a lot of the things that we have planned Those plans go out the window because of unforeseen events, if the Lord wills. And so a challenge of faith for a Christian is, can I acknowledge God's presence? Can I acknowledge God's providence in every decision that I'm making? Can I remember God's will in my plans? As we think about the future in the business world or at school or wherever we are on a daily basis, can I remember God's presence in my commitments, the things that I promise people I will do, the things that we commit ourselves to being a part of. Can I remember God's will in the decisions that I make? These are matters of faith. I'm living life with God. And brothers and sisters and friends, one of the things we ought to do when it comes to our schedules, listen to me, we ought to pray about our schedules. And every once in a while, we ought to look at the calendar that we've planned for ourselves. And we ought to just take that and put it before God in prayer and say, God, I want to be doing your will, and if there's something on this calendar that's not your will, or if there's something on this calendar that I'm really wanting to do, but you have other plans, help me, Father, to be humble enough to acknowledge your plans and your will and not my own. It's about living by faith. It's a test of faith. I'm walking with God through this life. I'm not by myself, and neither are you. And if that's true, Does he get any credit? Does he get any attention? Does anything that he says really make a difference in how I make plans for the future? 
Psalm 90 verse 12, the psalmist said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And every one of us needs to pray that prayer. God, teach me to number my days that I might gain a heart of wisdom. Last test, number seven, the test of praying about everything. How's your prayer life? Prayer and faith go hand in hand. And in James chapter five, beginning in verse 13, James says, every Christian ought to pray about everything. He says, for example, that we ought to pray when we're sick. James chapter five, verse 13, if if anyone among you cheerful, let him sing praises. Is anyone sick? Let him pray. We ought to pray when others are sick. Someone's sick. The Bible says in James 5, 14, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. Again, as you look at the passage, we ought to pray when forgiveness is needed. When someone has wronged us or when we've wronged someone, there ought to be prayer that's taking place and we ought to be forgiving one another of our trespasses. And notice, he's just trying to encompass prayer is the lifeblood of faith. It is something that Christians do because we believe that prayer changes things. That's James's point. Prayer is effective. God hears and answers prayers. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. James chapter five, verse 16. Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe that God hears and answers prayer? What kinds of things do you pray about and pray for? This is a test of our faith. Put it to the test. What does my prayer life and what does the content of my prayers say about where my faith is placed? And what does it say about my relationship with God? James is an immensely practical epistle. And what James wants you and me to do as we read these five chapters He wants us to remember that over and over and over every day, there are all of these neat opportunities. Not all of them are easy opportunities to experience, but there are all of these neat opportunities for us to see where our faith really lies, how our faith is really doing. And when we stop and really think about it, there's not a one of us, there is nobody who passes all these tests with flying colors. There's not a one of us that says, you know, all seven of those things, check, 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 check. I scored 100% on all of them. There is nobody who can say that because only Jesus ever lived in such a way. But what Jesus has done is he came and lived a perfect life for you so that, so that you could become righteous in him. By virtue of the blood that he shed at the cross, he can make you whole. He can make you right with God. If you need to respond to him in faith this morning, hear his word, do what he says. Obey the gospel by believing in Jesus, confessing his name, repenting of your sin and being baptized for the remission of your sin. If you're ready to respond and make that commitment this morning, or if we can help you in any way, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.
Good morning. Good to see you this morning. It's time to start our Bible study. 2 Thessalonians 1 is where you can open your Bibles if you'd like to follow along. There are also handouts just outside the glass doors in the foyer if you'd like one of those. And the entire chapter, 2 Thessalonians 1, is on your handout if you want to pick one of those up. So you can circle and underline words and phrases if you'd like to. Uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer this morning and we'll get into our study. Let's, let's bow. Father, we're so thankful that you blessed us with this morning. We're so thankful, Father, for the opportunity that we have to gather. We pray that you'll bless our study today as we think about what your word teaches regarding what happens when Jesus returns. We pray that everything that we think about, everything that we say will be in accordance with what your word teaches. Help us, Father, not to follow our own opinions and our own thoughts and our own um, inclinations, but rather to listen to what your word teaches and allow that to shape and inform our understanding, our convictions, and, and our hope regarding what's going to happen when the Lord returns. We're thankful, God, for Jesus and for the sacrifice that he made, for the resurrection that he experienced so that we can have hope as well of the resurrection of the dead one day. We pray that you'll bless us in our study in this time. It's in Jesus we pray these things. Amen. We have been studying this quarter, the end of time. We have one lesson left next week, and I've been kind of thrown off because I was ill a couple of weeks ago, unfortunately, and... um, so if your handout says February 11th, there's a reason for that. Uh, it, it's because I sometimes get ambitious and print um, my documents in advance so that I don't have to waste more time later on. In, in my mind, it's wasting time to print some extras. And, uh, and so I printed these a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so that's why it says the wrong date. But having said all that, we have one more week left in our study of things regarding the end. We're looking this morning at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we are talking about what this chapter has to teach us regarding the return of Jesus. Over and over this quarter, we've been looking at various passages that from the New Testament perspective tell us about some, some specifics regarding the end of time when this world comes to an end. And we're going to start this morning just uh, briefly to, to introduce this study. We're going to talk about what's going on with the Thessalonian brethren. 2,000 years ago, we have a congregation in a place called Thessalonica, and they are suffering. They're going through some severe persecution. And as Paul writes the letter of 2 Thessalonians, one of his reasons for writing this letter is to help them to understand that even though they're being persecuted, that this is worth it to hold on to their faith, that they shouldn't give up on Jesus and they shouldn't give up on the gospel, and that God is going to make things that are wrong and things that are seemingly unjust and unfair, God's going to make those things right. And so as Paul begins this letter in 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 3, notice that he says, we ought always to give thanks for you all, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And therefore, we ourselves boast about you uh, in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. So notice that the scripture tells us these people are going through persecutions and afflictions. And that's important for our understanding of what's happening in the rest of this chapter, in the rest of the book, really. They're going through persecutions and afflictions. People are mistreating them because they are Christians, because they have turned to the Lord. Don't think that you are special, that somehow you're going to escape that. 
If you are a Christian, sooner or later at various times in your life, you will find that people will mistreat you because you belong to Jesus. You're not different from them. You're not different from the Lord. This is a required course in the school of faith. All who strive to live righteous in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12 tells us. So they're going through persecutions, they're experiencing afflictions, and notice what Paul thanks God for. He's giving thanks to God for three things. And these three things show up in just about every one of Paul's letters somewhere. The first thing he thanks God for is that their faith is growing abundantly, you see that? And then the second thing he thanks God for is that their love for each other is increasing. And then, Faith, love, and what else goes with faith and love? Hope, right? Faith, hope, and love. Look at this. He doesn't use the word hope, but he says your steadfastness and faith, which are manifestations of our hope. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, at the end of the chapter about love, the, the apostle writes, now abide faith, hope, love, these three. The greatest of these is love. But faith, hope, and love go together. And this is a shorthand biblically for, is the church healthy? Is the church growing in good ways? We might look at budgets and we might look at attendance and ask, is the church growing? And that's not really the first thing that Christians ought to look at. Those numbers, budgets, and attendance can tell us some things about the church, but they don't tell us the real story about whether we're growing in our relationship with God. The three words, faith, hope, and love, those do tell the story. And when Paul prayed for the church and when he thanked God for the church, he didn't say, I thank God that you finally have hit 200 in your attendance, or I thank God that you finally have hit a benchmark in your budget uh, goals. He He didn't say those things biblically. He said, I thank God because your faith is growing. And because your love, and when he brings up love, it's always love for the saints. It's love for other Christians that he's talking about. That your love is increasing. And I thank God that you are steadfast, that you are holding on to your hope and your faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. You see, hope has to do with how we handle the tough times how we handle the challenges, how we handle the difficulties that all of us experience. That's what hope is all about. And this chapter in this book is going to be about Christians and their hope. And so everything else you're gonna read in 2 Thessalonians 1 about the end of time here is going to tell us some things that we are hoping for, some things that God has promised and reviewing and reminding the Christians of things that God has said are going to happen when the Lord returns. Faith, hope, and love. So you wanna evaluate any congregation anywhere. You wanna evaluate any family anywhere. Ask this question, where's our faith, where's our hope, where's our love? Are those things being readily and easily expressed in our lives? Questions about that? Really important. Faith, hope, and love, okay? All right, with that in mind, he's gonna talk to them about their hope. You guys are being steadfast in persecutions and afflictions that you're experiencing. And again, he goes into uh, here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is evidence 
Um, what is evidence of the righteous judgment of God? The fact that they are experiencing afflictions and persecutions. It's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are also suffering. What he's saying is the fact that you're hurting, the fact that you're suffering, that's actually evidence that you're doing things right. When we experience torment and affliction and persecution because of our faith, our tendency is to second guess ourselves and to ask, am I really pleasing God? If I was pleasing God, why is all this bad stuff happening? Why are all these people being antagonistic to me? If I were pleasing God, why, why is this taking place? And the scripture here is saying this the affliction you're experiencing, the suffering you're experiencing, this is evidence that you're doing what God wants. It is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Said another way, God takes his people out of the world when he saves them and makes them into salt and light. And light burns people's eyes sometimes. And salt is unwanted, it's unwelcome sometimes. And both salt and light are drastically different. And what he's saying is God takes his people and puts them in the world and makes them salt and light. And the fact that we sometimes experience affliction and persecution is evidence that we really are being the salt and light that God in his righteous judgment intended for us to be. We're living the way that God wants. That doesn't mean that anybody ought to go out of their way to antagonize their neighbor. It doesn't mean that Christians ought to seek out persecution and seek out, um, you know, being different just for different sake. What it does mean is that when you live as a Christian, people are going to notice the difference. Have you ever had this happen to you? People, you walk into a room, maybe it's family members, maybe it's coworkers, you walk into a room and the conversation you can immediately tell is as unholy as it can be. Maybe somebody's telling a dirty joke or maybe they're, maybe they're griping or complaining about somebody at work and all of a sudden you walk into the room and they get really quiet and they say, we got to stop talking about this. John's here now. We, we, can't, we can't tell this joke anymore. I, I don't want to offend John or fill in your blank, fill in your name. That's what we're talking about. People know when you stand for what Jesus stands for, they know it. And Paul is saying, this is evidence, the suffering that you experience, the fact that people treat you different because you are a Christian, this is evidence. And then beginning in verse six, he starts talking about right here, he starts talking about the end when Jesus returns. And here's the hope, here's what he's doing. When Jesus returns, Paul says, God is going to make everything that's wrong right. All afflictions and all unjust treatment of Christians, everything that's happening to you because you are a Christian, all of those wrongs are going to be righted. And how's that going to happen? It says that Jesus, that God is going to, hang on. God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
And not only is he going to repay with affliction those who afflict and harm the people of God, but also he's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, Paul and the apostles, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And so the hope event that we're looking forward to is the revelation of Jesus, the fact that he's going to be revealed. And the Bible's really emphatic about this. Almost every time the Bible speaks about Jesus being revealed, it almost always says he's coming from heaven. Heaven is a real place. It's a wonderful place. And that's where Jesus is right now. He's going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's what Christians are looking forward to. When Jesus is revealed with his mighty angels, those who afflict the people of God and have no remorse and they show no signs of changing, they are going to be repaid in kind. Not only that, but when Jesus is revealed from heaven, he also is going to grant relief to all of those who are serving him faithfully. When does the relief come? We are not promised relief in this life. Notice that in the passage. Maybe God in his grace and mercy will grant us relief from time to time in this world, in this life, but he does not promise that. What he does promise is that when Jesus returns, relief will be granted to those who are afflicted. So a Christian's hope, we're thinking about faith, hope, and love. A Christian's hope is when Jesus comes back, all wrongs are going to be righted, all wounds are going to be healed, all tears are gonna be wiped away, those kinds of things. Any questions thus far? Okay, first question on your handout, if you're keeping up with the handout. The first question on the handout is, when Jesus returns, who's coming with him? That's an interesting question. Because often we just kind of in our minds maybe think about Jesus in all of his glory and all of his greatness returning. But the Bible tells us that some people are coming with him. Some individuals are coming with him. In the first place, the scripture says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he's also going to be revealed with his mighty angels. You see that? And so the question, who's coming with Jesus? The angels are. And not only does 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 tell us that, but Matthew 25 verse 31 tells us this as well. The Son of Man, just, these are the words of Jesus, when he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and he will divide the sheep from the goats and he will say to the sheep, um, you know, enter into the life that, uh, that I provided and to the, the goats, depart from me, uh, you curse it into everlasting darkness. But the angels are coming too, according to this passage. When Jesus is revealed from heaven, all of his angels are coming with him. Interesting to think about. Not only that, but there are other passages. Who's going to be with Jesus when he returns? The saints who have died. The Bible tells us that Jesus is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So, 
This is way back, going back to our first lesson in this series. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 14. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. We're talking about people who have died, who are Christians, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus returns, there will be a resurrection of the dead. And the scripture here tells us that Jesus is going to bring with him, other passages tell us he's going to bring the angels with him. This passage tells us when he comes, he's going to bring those who have fallen asleep with him. The souls of all those saints who have departed through all the ages, their souls will be reunited with their bodies. There will be a resurrection of the dead at that time. Jesus is bringing those souls with him. Consider another passage that teaches the same principle. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, all his holy ones. When Jesus returns, brothers and sisters, he is coming back with the angels and he's coming with the souls of those who have departed. Any questions about all that? Great. Glad you have no questions. Okay. All right. Moving right along then. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord Jesus, this is 7b to 8 now, okay? And notice the terminology and the, the things that are said here, they, they, become, they become frightening when you stop and consider what's being said here about the return of Jesus. It says, the Lord Jesus, he is going to be revealed from heaven. Where is he coming from? He's coming from heaven. He's coming with his mighty angels. He's coming in flaming fire. And as we think about the flaming fire that's coming, when you read the Old Testament prophecies and the prophets would see visions of fire and brimstone, those were judgment prophecies. God is going to judge the wicked. He's going to pour out his wrath on those who are evildoers. And that's the same connotation that's being spoken of here because it tells you, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Or if you go back to verse six, it's a just thing with God to repay those um, who afflict you. Repay them with affliction. And here in verse eight, Jesus is going to inflict vengeance on two groups. The first group is those who do not know God. The second group is those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. A lot of writers have asked, is that, is that the same group of people or are those two different groups? And the answer is yes. Okay. The, uh, you know, some people obey the gospel and then later on they repent of that and they turn away from God. They repent of their obedience to the gospel and they go back to the world and they, they depart from a knowledge of God. And so they've obeyed the gospel, but they don't know God anymore. It's also true that when somebody hears the gospel and refuses to obey it, neither do you obey the gospel, nor do you know God. And who is God, who is his wrath going to be poured out upon? 
Okay, as you look at the passage, God is concerned with two things, two specific things here. He's concerned for you to know him. He's concerned for you to obey the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus. And what is that good news? Jesus died for you. He rose from the grave. He wants you to have eternal life, salvation in him. He came to rescue you from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. And that's the good news. Obey the good news. The gospel is not just something to be believed. It's something to be obeyed. And God is not somebody that he just, you know, wants us to take all of his gifts and blessings. God wants us to know him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. And there's wrath for those who refuse to do those things. I don't want to know God. I don't want to understand him. I don't want to know his will. I don't want to obey the gospel. Too much of a change for my life. Too many things I would have to give up. Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven one day with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so, on your handout, when Jesus returns, who will be the objects of his wrath? Those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, according to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. You know, in the context of 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, this referred most strongly to the Jews that lived in Thessalonica. If you've read the account in Acts 17 of how the church in Thessalonica was established, immediately as soon as some obeyed the gospel, the Jews in that town began to persecute the church. And one of the reasons why Paul is saying these things, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, he's saying those things and he's saying, if you don't obey the gospel, you don't know God. And those Jewish people that were persecuting the church would have said, we've known God for generations. Our people were given the commandments by Moses and we're part of the covenant that, that God made with Abraham. And we've known God forever. And this passage is saying, no, there's been a clean break where Judaism is concerned. Judaism was fulfilled in what Jesus did. And now all men everywhere are to repent and to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And if you don't do that, you don't know God. Questions or thoughts? Yes, sir. Right. Tom is saying that these Jews who were persecuting the church believed that they were doing God's service. They were, they were trying to stamp out this, this upstart group that believes in Jesus as, as being divine and serves and worships him. And, and, um, and, and, and Tom's conclusion there is, even though we have good intentions, religious intentions, uh, those, those good intentions don't matter if we're not being obedient to the word of God. That's exactly right. Okay. Yes. John, what do you think the devil is doing while God is getting ready for, to come and take us? So Sylvia is asking what, what is God doing or what is the devil doing while God's, while, while we're waiting right now? Um, 
the short answer is the devil knows that he is lost, but he is as mad as he can be, and he's trying his absolute best to win as many souls as he can. That's the, that's the short answer. Um, he's filled with anger, he's filled with wrath, and he's trying as his best to, to be an affront to the purposes and the plans of God in, in the world today. Okay, but this is a Christian's hope that Jesus is going to return. And the thing about all this is what you're reading in 2 Thessalonians 1 or 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, 2 Peter 3. There is not a power in heaven or on earth or in hell that can stop what God has planned. So the real question of our lives boils down to, am I going to obey God's will? Am I going to do what God wants because these events that we're reading about, these will come to pass. And there's nobody, not even the devil himself, can stop any of this from happening, which is profound to think about. That's what our hope is. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh huh. Right. What? Right. Uh, well, it doesn't say anything about the souls of the unrighteous. Um, Woodrow's asking about First Thessalonians four thirteen through seventeen. Um, I would I would answer the question this way, Woodrow. Um, the Bible is speaking in First Thessalonians four about what's happening because the question that the Thessalonians had was what happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are dying? Are they missing out on the second coming? And Paul's answer is no, Jesus is going to bring their souls with him when he returns. And the implication from that should not be for us to say, well, he's going to leave all the souls of the unrighteous behind. That's, that's not the implication we ought to take from that. He's just answering one specific question in 1 Thessalonians 4. There are other passages elsewhere in the New Testament that speak of the resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous uh, on the day of judgment. Uh, John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29, for example, speaks about that. So just because a context like 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't speak about specifically the wicked dead and their souls doesn't mean that there's not a plan for them, okay? Go back to some of the previous lessons in this series and, and we've talked a little bit about that um, as well. All right, First, or 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. We are talking about the Bible doctrine of hell at this point. Um, this is one of the clearest passages and clearest statements on the fate of the wicked. Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. This is one of the clearest statements anywhere in the New Testament about that doctrine. And the idea of hell biblically is very, very common. It is, it's, it, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Uh, he, he warned people, and we'll talk about some passages here in just a moment, about staying away from it, about not being uh, a, a member of groups that are, that are heading that way. Jesus describes hell as a place where there is punishment, there is torment. He describes it as a place that is everlasting. And I realize that those ideas are repulsive to most people, especially today. They're not fun to think about, but they are Bible teaching. This is what the scripture says. And there are three ways that people have tried to mitigate or minimize because you really can't just say, well, hell's not even a Bible concept. It is very clearly. 
No matter what you think about hell, it is a Bible concept. But three ways that people have tried to mitigate or lessen or soften this doctrine that people are going to be consigned, they're going to be sentenced to uh, a lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and that's going to endure forever and ever. How would you soften that? Three things. Some religious people use the doctrine of purgatory. The idea that you know, you've been bad, but you haven't been that bad. And so after you die, maybe we can pray or maybe we can ask for some extra credit and we can get you out of purgatory. When your soul is purged, then you can leave. Or there's another doctrine, the doctrine of a second chance. Maybe God is going to look at all of us on the day of judgment if we've lived a wicked life, if we've not obeyed the gospel and we don't know God and say, you know, I think that maybe I just need to go back and and give all these people yet one more opportunity to obey. Second chance. The third is probably the most common among people that, that you might associate with. The way that you'd mitigate hell is to say, well, hell is not eternal. It's just temporary. And opinions vary about how long it's going to last. But this is called the doctrine of annihilationism. The idea that our souls will exist in this place of torment for a time, whether it's one second or whether it's a million years is really irrelevant, but our souls will exist there for a time and then they'll just be snuffed out, annihilated, no longer existing. That's the third false doctrine or way to try to mitigate what's being done or what's being said in scripture. I'm just going to kind of interact with that for a moment here as we look at 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 and some other passages. But I want you to think about, okay, what's being said about hell in this passage. Hell is a place for those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. They, you see that? The identity of people who will be lost. It's not just the people that you're mad at. It's not just the people that you don't like or that you don't approve of their lifestyle. It's everybody who does not know God. It's everybody who refuses to obey the gospel. Hell is a place of suffering. You see that? It's a place of suffering. I don't know what's going on with my pen. Here we go. Ah, well, it's a place of suffering and it's a place where there is discomfort, there is pain, there is torment, all of those things. It's a place of punishment. Nobody's going to be lost and nobody's going to hell that does not deserve that fate. Okay, yes. Yes. So, yeah, Jody's saying that there are people that are walking around, and, and yes, this is very common. It's, it's, it's our society. How could a loving God ever condemn someone to a fate like this? And there are a lot of responses that one could give. One of the best is, you know what our problem is? We don't see sin the way God sees it. How bad is sin? How terrible is sin? You've got to look to the cross to even begin to start to understand how terrible sin is. Sin is so heinous, it's so terrible that it required the blood and the death of Jesus, the only innocent person who ever lived. And, you know, we, we think we can give, you know, grades and gradients to what sin is. And, uh, and so the question is, how can a loving God do this? 
the other side of that question is, how could a just God not do this? So hell is a place of suffering. It's a place of punishment. It is a place of everlasting destruction. You see that? And not only that, it is a place that is, and we'll talk about that word destruction in just a moment. The word destruction here, it means ruin or loss. I'll explain that a little bit more in just a moment. A place of ruin, a place of loss. What is hell? It is a place that is away from the presence of the Lord. The absolute worst thing about hell is that you are outside of, you are away from the presence of the Lord in that place. There is no more hope, there's no more blessing, there's no more mercy, there's no more grace, there's no more joy because you are away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord is the one who brings all those things into your experience and whether you know it or not and whether you acknowledge it or not, you have been the beneficiary of those things from God all of your life. But there will be a time when those who are sentenced to this place are away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I tend to believe the emphasis of this phrase, the glory of his might, means you are going to be beyond a place where God is willing to help you. Up until now, in all of our lives, if we so choose, God will help us. If you want to do God's will, if you want to bless people, if you want to live with faith, hope, and love, God will help you. He's on your side. He's for you. But there will come a time when the Lord Jesus returns in flaming fire, bringing vengeance on all those who do not know God. There will come a time when God will be at a point where you are beyond in this place, hell. You're beyond the glory of his might, the power that he has to help you and to bless you and to enrich your life. So, let's explore this just a little bit more, okay? When Jesus returns, what will be the fate of those who face his wrath? The first word there in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 is eternal. The Greek word is ionion. And the Greek word there means that which is eternal or everlasting. It is the same exact word that we use to describe eternal life in a number of other passages. And so, if we're going to say that hell is only temporary, that we just spend a little time there and then our souls are annihilated, if that's going to be the argument, then this word also has to mean that, logically, regarding our future in glory, regarding heaven. Secondly, it's not just eternal, but it is this word destruction. And the Greek word is olithros, and the word itself means loss or ruin. It does not mean annihilation. It does not mean, you know, it it goes out of existence. We sometimes might use the word destroy in English to mean that. That is not what this Greek word means. It means loss or ruin. The analogy I've used to help illustrate this, back in 2017, we had the terrible flooding with Hurricane Harvey around here. There were thousands upon thousands of cars that were destroyed. Anybody wanna buy a a, a salvage title flooded car? Anybody wanna own one of those? So what do you do with a car like that? If your car was out in the street when Harvey hit and it got flooded up to the windows with water, what do you do with a car like that? I mean, what do we do? We take, we take the car and we move it out to some lot somewhere and 
The car has been destroyed. The insurance company says it's a total loss. That doesn't mean that the car has been annihilated. It's been destroyed though, hasn't it? And that's the implication, that's what's being said about hell. It is a place of everlasting loss, everlasting ruin. Questions? Yes. Uh, I am not aware of any passage anywhere that, that we see words for annihilation uh, being spoken of. Yeah, I, I'm not even sure what word would be used. Um, yeah, to answer Chip's question. Yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. Right. So, so Gina's saying it's a good question. She's saying, you know, a lot of people don't believe in hell. Obviously, uh, a lot of people don't even believe in heaven. And um, and her question centers around in the Old Testament, God did a lot of miracles and signs and wonders to confirm that what he was saying was true. And now we believe that, that miracles and signs and wonders have ceased. And how could you help somebody to, to come to a conviction or belief in these matters um, if, if they don't? And the simple, the straightforward answer that the Bible gives is the Bible has been confirmed by witnesses. And the Bible, the Bible is an accurate picture of our future. It's an accurate picture of what God has in store for everyone. And there are lots of good reasons to believe that what the Bible is telling us about these matters are true. And that's where God leaves it. But the, the interesting thing, Gina, is even people that saw miracles in the Old Testament or even in the days of Jesus, not all of them believed. Even though they saw miracles, a lot of them said about Jesus, well, he's casting out demons by the power of demons, by the power of Satan, he's doing this. And even if people could see miracles today, even if that were still happening, that wouldn't change people's beliefs about a lot of these things. This really is a matter of faith. Okay, now it is faith that is well-placed. It is faith that has a lot of evidence underlying it. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to take place with, with the end of time. But it's just a matter of, you know, have you ever been to heaven? Have you ever been to hell? Have you ever seen those places with your own eyes? No, nobody has. Nobody alive today has. And 
Okay, well, how do you know it exists? I know it exists because God tells me it exists and God has given abundant corroborating evidence to prove that what he's saying to us is true about these matters. Okay, I'm going to move on just because we're going to run out of time here in just a moment if we if we don't. Um, yes, ma'am, Miss Melody. I, I think sometimes things happen. Mm-hmm. So there are some extraordinary things that happen in life. Melody's asking about miracles and, and some things just kind of seem almost miraculous. There are some extraordinary things that happen in life, but they are different in their character and nature from the miracles we read about in the Bible. The miracles we read about in the Bible are you know, somebody walks into a room where there's a person that's dead lying on the table and they say, arise, get up and walk. Um, that's a miracle. Or somebody that's been blind all their life, all of a sudden, just boom, just snap of your fingers, they can see. That's a miracle. And while there are extraordinary things that happen to us even today, I don't, I don't question the extraordinary nature of a lot of what takes place and, in God's providence, in God's goodness. Um, those things that happen to us today don't rise to the level of the standard of what we would call miracles in the Bible. Yeah. So, um, okay. A couple things. Uh, when Jesus returns, what will be the face of the fate of those who face his wrath? Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he says, these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Again, if eternal punishment, if that's going to be temporary, if we're going to argue that there is an annihilation that takes place, then we're also going to be implying something, grammatically at least, about the nature of eternal life. Well, that's not going to last forever either, if that's what the word means, that we can go out of existence at some point. Okay. Um, I'm just going to pass on past a bunch of the stuff that I had here. Um, Matthew 7, 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, depart from me. Why? Because I never knew you. Who is God? Who is his wrath going to be visited on? <coughs> his wrath is going to be visited on those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. Okay, so hell is, biblically, it's a place of everlasting ruin or loss. In hell, we lose our hope, we lose our comfort, we lose our mercy, we lose our joy. It is a place of infinite regret. The rich man who fared sumptuously and was well-dressed died and was awakened in torment. He opened his eyes and lifted up his eyes. And the scripture speaks about him regretting the way that he had lived, regretting not being able to go back and to speak to his brothers who, who were still living. Um, it's a place of regret. The Bible has nothing good to say about this. And it has every reason to warn us, do not live apart from God. Do not live outside of his gospel and outside of a knowledge of God. Then finally, okay, as we finish up 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, Jesus, when he comes on that day, we're talking about the day when Jesus returns, 
Not only is he going to bring vengeance, but he's also going to be glorified in his saints. He's going to be marveled at among all who have believed. Okay? So, at the same time that he's bringing vengeance and wrath to those who do not know God and refuse to obey the gospel, those who are saved, those who believe, they will look at Jesus and will be, will be marveling at him and will be amazed and uh, will adore him for all of eternity. The scripture says, to this end, we always pray for you. And Paul's praying for his brethren who are going through persecution. And what's interesting about this section, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12, is that the apostle doesn't pray for God to remove their affliction. He doesn't pray for God to take away their suffering. What he does pray for is for them to be worthy of their calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by God's power. And so he's praying for them to keep on serving Jesus and to keep on doing good works. That's what he's praying for them. And oftentimes when people are suffering or going through difficulty, we pray for God to remove the difficulty. There's nothing wrong with praying that, but that's not what Paul prayed for here. He prayed for God to help them to have endurance, to keep on walking and serving and loving and, and being the kinds of light and salt that God wants the, the Christians uh, in that place and here in this place today to be. So that, in the, so that the name of the Lord Jesus be glorified in you, you in him, according to the grace of our God. Okay, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this passage ends with a note of grace. And it's saying, God is with you. God is for you, Christians. And when you go through suffering and difficulty, don't think that it's a sign of God's displeasure that God is angry with you. Rather, this is evidence that you are doing what God desires. You're living the way God wants you to live. And my prayer for you is that you'll keep on living that way and that God's grace will be with you and that his mercy and his comfort and his compassion and his strength will be yours as you continue to faithfully serve him in a lot of difficult circumstances. That's the end of the chapter, All right? Thank you very much for your attention, for your comments and questions this morning. One more lesson next week and we'll be done with this series. Thanks very much.